Okay, well, this morning we've come as far in our study through Genesis as to chapter 6 onwards. Chapter 6 through 9 deal with the subject of the flood, the flood of Noah, as we often refer to it as. Now, chapter 6, I'll say up front, is I think probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Now, that's an incredible statement because there are many, many important chapters in the Bible. But this chapter is really very pivotal. So many things get answered and addressed if we understand what we see in chapter 6. Uh, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're not going to get through the whole of the chapter this morning. It's not my intention to do so. But we are coming towards the end of that first section. And there is so much instruction in chapters 1 to 11. So much information that we need to take on board to understand the world in which we live. And of course, the devil loves to try and discredit and pull down. Now, he hasn't done a particularly good job because there's so many gaps in the arguments that are put up by the critics that they're fairly easy to dismantle. And praise God for people like Bill Cooper and others that have shown the authenticity of these things, the fact that what we have here is a true historical account. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those things in a moment. But first of all, well, let's go and ask some questions because much of the opening chapters, 6 to 9, are often ridiculed. They're attacked. They're misunderstood. But you see, God is not the author of confusion. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. You see, chapter 6, we're given the reason and the warning for the flood. Now, before we go anywhere, I want you to get your Bibles. I'm going to off on a little tangent before we even started. This is good, but this is, this is you know. Turn in the book of Genesis to chapter 18. Now, Chapter 18 is a chapter we, we introduced to Abraham by this point, and the Lord comes and appears to Abraham in the plains of Mamre. And they're, they're sitting down, and Abraham and Sarah, they've got their, their tent, and these three visitors come walking towards them. And Abraham clearly recognizes that these are just not ordinary people. He offers to make them food, uh, and they get ready a meal, and they sit and they enjoy this meal together. And then two of these individuals get up and walk off, who we later discover were angels. Angels seem to have this ability to take on human form. Angels don't have bodies like we have bodies, but they have the ability to appear in human form. And then this last character we find out was none other than God himself. Again, taking on the appearance of a man. And some people refer to this as a Christophany, uh, an appearance of Jesus prior to the incarnation. And all through the Old Testament, we find that God appears at various times in various ways. Ultimately, and this is what the, the writers of the book of Hebrews starts by telling us, ultimately, Jesus is that final manifestation of God in the person, uh, in human form, in the person of Christ. But we find that verse 17 of chapter 18, it says, And the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Now, God had already decided he was going to come and check out the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20 says, And the Lord said, Behold, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come up unto me, and if not, I will know. And uh, the men turned their faces from thence uh, and went towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now, this becomes a really interesting thing, um, because Abraham decides he's going to ask questions, because if you remember, Abraham's nephew Lot had 
originally separated from Abraham because there wasn't enough pasture land for their, their flocks and everything else. Uh, and so he moves off into the green plains and eventually ends up moving into this area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham's genuinely concerned for his nephew. Now we're told later that, that Lot is a righteous person. And Abraham asked the question in verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Says Abraham. And the Lord said, If I find... In Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And then Abraham goes on, and I think the Jews refer to this as chutzpah. Um, and he keeps asking the question, and he comes down and says, well, what about if there's 45? And God says, no, I'm not going to destroy it if there's 45 righteous. And Abraham says, okay, look, I've, I've already asked, I'm, I'm speaking to God, I don't deserve to ask the question, but what about 40? Would you still destroy it? And God says, no, if there's 40, I still won't destroy it. And so then Abraham thinks he's pushing it a bit, so he says, Lord, Please don't be angry. But what about if there's 30? Would you destroy the city of the 30? And God comes back and says, no, if there's 30. So he goes, well, what about 20? No, not if there's 20. And we get down to 10. Notice what God says. I will not destroy it for 10's sake. Now just think about that for a second. Because God is saying he won't destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of 10 righteous people. Well, let's jump back to where we are this morning because God destroys the entire world. What does that tell you about the world? If God wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous people and yet wipes out the entire world, it tells us we have a real problem that God was addressing. And this is what we're going to look at in just a moment. Now, chapter 7 gives us the flood itself. We're going to look at that in, in subsequent weeks. Chapter 8, we then see the new world as the waters kind of uh, rescind off the earth and so on. And then in chapter 9, God establishes this new covenant and a new promise, and there's also interesting things that will come out of that as well. Now, it's only the opening of chapter 6 we want to really address this morning. And this is a, a portion of scripture that the devil absolutely detests, and you'll see why as we go through. We're going to ask a couple of questions. First of all, if there once was a worldwide flood, what would the evidence be? Now, some of you know the song by Buddy Davis, and you know the answer to that. We're going to come to that in a second. But also then, we're going to ask the question, why would God allow his creation be, to be destroyed by a worldwide flood? If God has promised Abraham the judge of all the earth who does right, if it's promised to Abraham that he wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous, and yet is prepared to destroy the entire world, why? It's a really important question that we need to address. You see, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God declares his creation very good. So now he's about to destroy it? You see, we've had the murder of Abel, and yet God didn't stop at that point. We've seen the beginning of sexual excess. We saw that with the line of Cain going down, and particularly with Lamech, this individual that takes on two wives and so on. And, you know, and clearly we've seen already that the world had turned away from God, and we were looking last time, this death that is becoming a real problem in the world. If people start to realize their own mortality, and as we've seen already, some were blaspheming the name of God. But isn't destroying the world a bit extreme? That's what we're going to look at and try and address in a moment. You see, 
as I said already, we have to realize that something very serious was going on, and far more so than you're going to get taught in most places. And yet it's clearly here, described for us in Genesis 6. Now, that leads on to the question, why are there so many battles in the Old Testament? Because all these things are interrelated, they're linked together. Some of you may remember some time ago, um, a man by the name of John McCarthy, he was uh, taken captive in Beirut, I believe it was, and uh, he was a prisoner for many days, hostage. And eventually he was released. Now, when he was released, he was interviewed sometime afterwards, and he said that all they gave him was a Bible. And he started reading the Bible, and as he was reading through, he started reading about all these battles. And he said he concluded there and then that the Bible is not true. The Bible is false because there's no way a God of love could allow all this fighting and killing and so on. And that was basically his conclusion. And this leads to this kind of idea or phrase sometimes you hear about the God of the Old Testament. Now, our friend Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, uh, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Seems to be a bit wound up, doesn't he, Mr. Dawkins? This is what he says of the God of the Old Testament. be interesting one day when Richard Dawkins gets to stand before him and uh, give account for every word that he's spoken. Um, but that's another thing altogether. Now, before we go on and try and answer this, I want to just lay down some very simple uh, and important principles of interpretation because this is a passage of Scripture that some people will challenge and they'll try to read in things and say, well, it doesn't say this, it says that, and so on. And we have it all through the Bible. But these are fairly standard um, rules of interpretation, um, and I think most Christians would tend to subscribe to these. And and the the golden rule that tends to be put forward is this, that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Don't try and read in something just because you don't like it or don't want it to say that. If it says it, then that's probably what it means. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Unless you've got a really good reason to do so, just take it as it says. God is not the author of confusion, as we've said already. Another rule is sometimes referred to as the law of double reference. And this law observes the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Now, sometimes we refer to these as models or types or shadows or so on. The feasts of Israel are a great example of that. They dealt with something that was very real, had real application, and yet they clearly speak of something greater. Paul makes that point for us, that the the, the feasts were just a shadow of the things that were to come. Now, take Passover, of course, fulfilled in the, the death of Jesus in dramatic detail. And we've got, of course, things like the offering up or almost offering up of Isaac by Abraham. You know, you have the father offering up the son. Happens to be on the place Mount Moriah, which was the exact same location as later becomes known Calvary. And then later another father offers up 
his son on that very spot. And you, so you see these kind of models and, and types throughout scripture. Now, we have just the same going on here because do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? But as the days of Noah were, so shall also uh, the coming of the Son of Man be. So we see a direct correlation between what we're about to look at now and the days of the coming of the Son of Man. One is a, a foreshadowing of the other. The law of first mention, this is also very important because it states that the first time a word or idea is used in Scripture, it's usually indicative of its meaning in subsequent usages. And we see that a lot of times. One of the, the, the beautiful ones that we can point to is the word love. The first time that word ahab in the Hebrew occurs in Scripture is when God says to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. That's the definition of love, the love of a father for a son. And we see throughout scripture how that is played out. But there's a number of examples we could give of the way these words, the first time you find a word used in scripture, it normally defines how it's subsequently used. Another important thing to understand when we look at and read through scripture is what's referred to as the law of expositional constancy. It sounds very fancy, but it's simply this, that the Bible is consistent in the uses of ideas and figures throughout the Bible. Now, one we could look at is the fowls of the air, Matthew 13. You know, often we get this kind of, the fowls of the, or the birds go and lodge in the branches of the, the mustard seed tree as it becomes a tree. You know, and people give this kind of story of how wonderful the birds and the branches, until you understand that the birds are always seen in scripture as workers of iniquity. There's a negative connotation when we see them. And then you understand that that parable is saying something other than, the church is going to grow and be lovely. No, it's going to say the church is going to get to the stage where it becomes something it should never have been. Of course, that's historically been borne out. So there's lots of ideas like that we see, but the, the ideas and the types that God uses are consistent throughout Scripture. Another one, just to, to finish off this, is that Scripture is self-interpreting. That's so important to understand. You know, no passage of Scripture is by private, no prophecy is of private interpretation. It applies to all Scripture. Any passage of scripture that on the surface may seem to be difficult to understand is going to be explained elsewhere in scripture. And thus eliminating any guesswork or human opinion as to its meaning. One of the things that even people that I've worked with and talked to have tried to say to me is, oh, well, you can interpret the Bible how you want. Well, you can, but it doesn't mean it holds any validity. There is only one way to understand scripture. And, and one of the obvious proofs of this is the fact that you can go anywhere in the world and you can meet a genuine born-again Christian that has a love for the Word of God and you could have never sat down and studied the Bible together and you're in agreement. How can that happen? Well, it's only through the Holy Spirit. It's one of the things I've really enjoyed and been blessed with within Calvary Chapel, that I know that I can go and speak to pretty much any Calvary Chapel pastor anywhere in the world and we can sit down and we are going to be in probably 99% agreement on everything in Scripture. I've not spoken to them all. But because the Bible's the basis. It's the foundation. And you know, the good thing is, if there's anything we do have a slight variance or difference on, then it's an area that we want to look at and study together. And sometimes one individual may get an insight into a certain portion of Scripture. But Scripture is not there for each individual to come to their own understanding. The Bible explains the Bible. And that takes, again, as this bit says, any, any guesswork out of the equation. So really important things just to, to lay down as we go into this section. Okay, before we come back to all those things, though, let's ask the question, if there once was a worldwide flood, what would the evidence be? And you know the answer is, well, billions of rock We'll come back in a second. Before we do, we've got over 270 flood legends around the world. 
I mean, this is strong, strong evidence that there once was a flood. 88% favor a family that was saved. 70% of those legends speak of survival by a boat. 95% tell us that the sole cause was a flood. 66% that man's wickedness was the cause. 70%, uh, 77% of these legends say that animals were also saved. 57% tell us that the survivors end up on a mountain. Many say that a bird was sent out. Many say that eight people were saved. And many record a rainbow. And also many have record of a man named Noah or Noah or something derivative of his name. You know, now that just tells us these have got to have come from a common source. You're not going to have all of this just from one group or one culture making up a story. Now there's some real solid foundation to this. Okay, so what would the evidence be? Yes, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Now, that is exactly what we see. That's what we'd expect to find, and it is exactly what we find. You see, what do we see when we look around the earth? We do see billions of dead things that are buried in rock layers that have been laid down by water all over the earth. You couldn't want better evidence that there was once a worldwide flood than that. Now, just a couple of things just to highlight. We, we find marine fossils on the top of the highest mountains. Now, uh, some years ago, uh, Alan Titchmarsh, um, known for his gardening programs, um, was doing a new series. This has been and gone now. Um, but he was going to various different parts of the country, and he'd gone to Snowdonia, and he was going up to those the mountains in Wales and things. And he was commenting on the fact that there were marine fossils on the top of the mountain. And he was telling everybody on this, this radio interview how incredible it was that these glaciers had pushed these fossils up to the top of the mountain. Like, really? Seriously? I mean, what happened? Did, did, did this kind of fish or whatever die and then just get pushed to the top and somehow get buried? And, and why didn't it decay on the way up? And I mean, glaciers move slowly. And how can an intelligent man come up with that kind of conclusion? Surely it's far more logical and reasonable to say, well, hang on, once something happened that deposited this fish here and it got trapped and fossilized. It seems to be logical. Another one that I, I love, a bit of closer to my old home, the White Cliffs of Dover. This is fabulous. The cliffs are composed primarily of cacothylites, or this, these things. They're plates of calcium, uh, calcium carbonate, um, formed by these single-cell planktonic algae, these creature things that got crushed and squashed and so on. Now, did you know that the current rate of erosion of the White Cliffs of Dover is 0.39 of an inch per year? Some of that might have been me when I was younger, playing up there and knocking bits and pieces off of it, but there's an average height of 350 feet. And it gives us height in terms of feet, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, in terms of inches of 4,200 inches as the kind of average height for the cliffs. Now, that means, going on the rate of erosion, that the cliffs will be gone in 10,769 years. That may seem a long time, but it's nothing like the time spans we're told by the world. We've got another interesting issue here. What else, other than a flood, can explain why we even have concentrations of chalk, as we refer to it now, in these locations? Are, we tell are you telling me that all these little creatures decided to go to Dover and die? Why? Why do we have them? The only explanation is that something happened, everything got mixed up, and as happens if you have various particles in liquid, they get sorted according to weight and density and everything else. 
They were just sifted and deposited by the violent global shake-up at the time of the flood. That's the only logical explanation. Anything else just has no credibility. We've also got twisted and bent rock strata. That clearly has been deposited when soft and then it's got hardened. Rock, as you know probably quite well, doesn't bend. It doesn't happen gradually. I mean, there's some pictures there, maybe not the clearest, but you know, we've got all sorts of examples in this country around the world of rock strata that is clearly bent. Now that's not a process of time and things shifting because all that would happen is it would crack. Now this was laid down when it was wet and it's hardened. Many, many more things. You know, we've got evidence all around the world of erosion, mass erosion, water running off the earth. Now you look at something like the Grand Canyon pictured there. Now, people tell us that it was a little bit of water over a long period of time that the Colorado River that runs through the valley had kind of carved out this this, uh, Greek canyon over this period of time. But that doesn't quite add up. The entrance of the river is lower than the the exit. This is a problem. Rivers tend to flow downhill, not uphill. Now, this was a lot of water and a very little bit of time to cause this. And there's so many examples of, of erosion we see. And then there's things like the geologic column. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. You know, but this is essential to that belief in millions of years. Again, it's only supported by the geologic column. Carbon dating, by the way, can only date living or once living material. And even then it can't go back any further than 50,000 years. I was having an interesting conversation at work recently and an individual uh, was just trying to uh, laugh at the idea that the Earth is young. And he was using the whole thing, as they often do, talking about dating methods and so on. And he mentioned this, and I said, look, okay, I think carbon dating is no use. And he said, no, 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 they've proven this. I said, okay, go and see how old you can get. And he went to his phone, he Googled it, and he found out that you can only go back to about 50,000 years. I said, that doesn't help you. Oh, radiometric dating, he said. Come to that in a second. The the way they do carbon dating, they measure the the isotope of carbon-14. It would decay beyond all trace, anything beyond about 50,000 years. And yet we still find carbon-14 in coal. Well, that tells us that it's not that old. Again, the flood is what has caused all these things. You know, we know what what coal is. It is fossilized trees and everything else that's been squashed and crushed. And How? How did it get crushed? You know, again, just go to the geological, I'm sure you've, you've seen these things. You know, the only place that exists is in a school textbook that we teach our children. Come back to that in a second but a couple of quotes here in about 1830 Charles Lyell and these other individuals mentioned there um, they came up with this system of this bio uh, stratigraphic technique or geologic column for dating these Cenozoic deposits based upon the relative proportions of living and extinct species of fossil mollusks and it says strangely this is actually uh, a scientist making this comment um, but in a magazine in geology um, some years ago. But it's a strange little effort has ever been made to test this assumption. And it says it leaves, this, this failure leaves the method vulnerable to circularity. And it does. You see, another quote, this is from the American Journal of Science, the intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rocks. That's how it's done. The geologist has never bothered to think of a good reply, feeling that the explanations are not worth the trouble as long as the work brings results. As long as they get their funding, does it really matter? That tends to be the way people roll. Again, from the American Journal of Science. 
Uh, and it cannot be denied that from a strictly philosophical standpoint, geologists are here arguing in a circle. The succession of organisms has been determined by a study of their remains embedded in the rocks, and the relative ages of the rocks are determined by the remains of organisms they contain. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, carbon 14, I mentioned that already. Radiometric dating is another one that people refer to, to, again, try and disprove the whole idea of the flood. They say, no, 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 this couldn't have happened. Well, another quote from you scientists, apart from very few, sorry, for, apart, from, yeah, apart from very modern examples, which are really archaeology, I can think of no cases of radioactive decay being used to date fossils. So anybody that tells you that radioactive, radioactive dating has been used and proven, it's not true. Ever since William Smith at the beginning of the 19th century, fossils have been and still are the best method and most, or best and most accurate method of dating and correlating the rocks in which they occur. But the problem is, again, that's all been decided by the geologic column. And the quote here, American Journal of Science, that the radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. That's enough of the, the dating stuff. You know, what's currently claimed? Well, we've got this idea of uniformitarianism. And then it really is brutally assaulted by the evidence to the contrary. It's the idea that everything has gradually changed over long periods of time. And the world in which we now live is the result of all these gradual changes. And it's really been brought in to counter the biblical approach of catastrophism, as it's often referred to. The idea that there have been a number of catastrophes through history, and most notably the flood. Now... I'll leave it in the notes, not for uh, now, but if you want to look through this on the web afterwards. Just a few comments about some of these individuals that brought in all of these ideas. Just one of the stupid comments here, you can see at the bottom, it's actually taken from Wikipedia, which is not necessarily the best source of knowledge, but it indicates what people think. The idea of uniformitarianism, it says, is one of the most basic principles of non-geology. The observation... That, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Observation? You can't observe the past. That's not science. This is all belief. And really, all of these individuals, Lyle and Darwin, and all these, the whole basis of what they did was to try and get away from the Bible. A number of these individuals publicly and openly stated that they wanted to get away from Scripture, from this belief in Moses and the Torah and the, you know, the opening books of the Bible. So, anyway, another couple of things. The oldest tree that we've got, 4,300 years old, approximately. Now, if the earth is much, much older, then why don't we have an older tree? But that correlates beautifully with the time of the flood, somewhere around about 4,400 years ago, according to the biblical chronology. The oldest desert, the Sahara Desert, well, we know we can measure how much it's growing over the years. We know it's about 4,000 years old. Well, that fits perfectly with what we know in Scripture. Again, 4,400 years ago, we have the flood. Coral reefs are another one. Beautiful things. There's a lot of concern, a lot of things on the news about them at the moment, and so on. <clears throat> but there was a study done after the Second World War looking at the growth, through the growth rate of the reef, and they concluded that the reef was about 4,200 years old, not millions of years, as, funny enough, is still taught in classrooms. Now, again, that fits perfectly with what the Bible says. You know, the population of the earth, again, is not consistent with these old earth ideas. But it's very consistent with the idea that eight people came off the ark about 4,400 years ago. That fits beautifully with what we know and we can observe. I like this comment. I'll just read this, this comment to you by Grant Jeffrey. Because the evolutionary scientists who believe that man existed for over a million years have an almost insurmountable problem. 
Using the assumption of 43 years for an average human generation, the population growth over a million years would produce 23,256 consecutive generations. We calculate that the expected population by by starting with one couple one million years ago and using the same assumption of a 43-year generation and 2.5 children per family. The evolutionary theory of a million years of growth would produce trillions by trillions by trillions by trillions of people that should be alive today on our planet. We know, of course, that's not the case. To put put this in perspective, this number is vastly greater than the total number of atoms in our vast universe. If mankind had lived on Earth for a million years, we would all be standing on enormously high mountains of bones from the trillions of skeletons of those who had died in past generations. However, despite the tremendous archaeological and scientific investigation in the last two centuries, the scientists have not found a fraction of the trillions of skeletons predicted by the theory of evolutionary scientists. Now, isn't it interesting as well that uh, I've got a quote in another in the evolution, science versus evolution, leave it at the back, by Dr. Vid Sidera. And he quotes that in, uh, in London there's a, um, an encyclopedia that's uh, stored in the British Library, um, and it lists all the, the, the kind of different fossil types and so on. And in terms of the fossil remains of man, it's incredibly sparse. And one of the things we'll see is that God said that he was going to wipe man from the face of the earth. It's very interesting that we find exactly that has happened. Darwin himself just just commented regarding the fossils. He says, as by this theory, innumerable transitional forms must have existed, this is before they'd had a chance to look at the evidence, why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth? Oh, Mr. Darwin, I know, it's because it didn't happen. He also said this, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and serious objection which can be argued against the theory of evolution. Probably is one of the most obvious uh, another obvious one is that it just doesn't make sense. It's not scientific. But anyway, um, the current rate of erosion also doesn't fit with these long Earth, millions of years timescales. But it's totally consistent with the idea that there was once a flood that turned everything in the world upside down. That as Psalm 104 tells us, formed the mountains. Even oil and so on, and coal seams and everything else. You know, the rocks can only hold the pressure for about 10,000 years or less, and yet you clearly know that we dig down and we find oil all around the world. Again, there's just more evidence and just extra... I mean, what else could have caused this, by the way? How do you get this concentration of these things buried and squashed and so on? Even fossils themselves are just great evidence that the flood happened. They do not support evolutionary scientists and so on. We've got dinosaurs that quickly drowned and were buried. No question about it. We can see that from the, the, the way they're contorted and so on. Mammoths quickly drowned in North America and quickly frozen in Siberia. And by the way, to quickly freeze a mammoth, it's been estimated you need to get somewhere down to about 400 degrees below, below zero. It's talking about something really cataclysmic taking place because it was, I mean, by the way, the mammoths have been found with tropical vegetation, undigested in their mouths and in their stomachs. It tells you what happened was sudden. You know, to freeze them, you know, 
they weren't just in a cold environment and they got cold, they fell over and they died. To freeze a mammoth, to that extent, it had to have happened very quickly. We'll talk in subsequent weeks about some of these things. We've got petrified forests that have been found at the South Pole. The earth was once very different and clearly something dramatic has happened to change the whole world. We've got land animals found fossilized in locations below sea level. Interesting. And then sea animals found, as we said earlier, fossilized at the highest elevations around the world. The evidence is overwhelming. And I'll just just point out something, because there's often misunderstood facts about scientists. And it's this. They all started life as children. Did you know that? Every one of them. And they all went to school. And they all got taught. And then they all went to further education or whatever they've done. And again, they got taught by people who had also been taught by people who taught them. And you see, at the end of the day, you're dealing with opinions of others, particularly when it's regarding the past, things that you can't verify or prove scientifically. You know, if you're only presented with one argument or one side of the argument and told categorically that it's true, chances are that's what you're going to believe. As I pointed out in my debate with Michael Gove a couple of years ago now, that you could quite happily say that everybody votes conservative if you got rid of all the other parties and gave them one option. If there was only one option, then everybody would vote the same way. Well, that's really what the the governments and the media and so on have done with evolutionary science and this whole idea of uniformitarianism. They've only presented one option to children. And as those children grow up and then go into education, they don't know that there's an option. A credible, scientifically verifiable option. Okay, so enough of that. There is plenty of evidence that was once a worldwide flood, no question. But the real big issue now for us is why would God allow his creation to be destroyed? This is really the important stuff for us. Well, let me remind you this. We have to remember that Satan is man's adversary. Satan is not God's adversary. We've got this really unfortunate mindset that seems to have come out of the the Middle Ages, partly due to art and literature and so on that came from that period, that seems to depict God in one corner and Satan in the other. And there's this cosmic battle and we're going to see who wins. That's nothing of the case. God is God. There is no other God. God could end or destroy Satan just like that if he wanted to. No, Satan is man's adversary. And so we have to understand that even this portion we're going to look at and the details here, we've got to understand that we are dealing with an adversary that detests mankind. He thought, as we've seen already, that the world was going to be given to him. When it's given to Adam, he's furious. And you see, Satan has been, and I use this term probably in the right way, hell-bent on the destruction of man ever since Eden. Satan hates mankind. Because of the position that mankind was given. Just in the same way that Haman hated Mordecai. We've talked about that. Now it all goes back to Genesis 3.15. This situation we read, and I will put, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between Satan and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Ultimately dealing with what took place at Calvary. But this battle has been going on because God didn't specify at this point in Genesis who the seed was going to be. When Adam and Eve had their first boys, Cain and Abel, they didn't know. 
Satan didn't know either. And I'm convinced that's why Satan worked within Cain, stirred him up and had Abel killed. And probably for a moment thought that he'd won. The seed was destroyed. And then we find that Adam and Eve had another child, another son, Seth. Another seed, as far as they were concerned. And they named his name, they, they named him Appointed. And I've got no doubt at that time that Adam and Eve probably thought that this was the one. But it turns out that it wasn't. And, and we go on all the way down through history. Satan didn't know when the seed was coming. Not to start with, not until God started to reveal things through the prophets. So we jump into chapter 6 and we read at the beginning of chapter 6. It came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And it's in response to that that the Lord says this. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, firstly to mention that 120 years, it's not saying that his lifespan will be 120 years. It's saying, I'm going to give him 120 years because it's 120 years from here to the flood. Man was given 120 years. God gave plenty of time. God gave warning. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But the important thing here, and the bit that causes so much contention is this phrase, the sons of God. Because we're told that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now this is the the real issue, because when we go into other scriptures, we find that this term, the the Hebrew for the term is benai ha'elohim. It's referring to angelic beings. It's used that way in Job on three occasions. Other historical references will come to in a short while. In the New Testament we find that this term is used not just of angels, which were a direct creation of God. It's used of Adam, who was a direct creation of God. The book of Enoch actually refers to the angelic beings in this way as well. But you know, this term is also used of you and I. This phrase, sons of God. Now in the context of Genesis 6, it is referring to angelic beings. We'll come back to this in a second. But... There's a really interesting aside in John 1, 11 to 13. Or one, it's actually 1 John, sorry. No, 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 sorry. Uh, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. Even to them that believed on his name, which were, not born, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In 1 John, sorry, the other reference I was going to refer to, He speaks there, Behold what manner of love the Father has poured upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And I do take issue with any translation that tries to change that to child of God, because they totally miss the point. The point is that we are given the place of the firstborn. The son was the one who would inherit. In, In the times of the Old Testament, that's how it was done. Whether you like it or not, that's how it was done. The son was the one who would inherit. And so what John tells us is that whether you are a male or a female... Now you are given the place of the firstborn son. Just to say child doesn't make any sense. You've been given the place of the firstborn son. And as this verse here tells us in John 1, 
and that we have become the sons of God. We have become, just like Adam, just like the angelic beings, we have become a direct creation of God. What a privilege for us. What a wonderful thing that is. But let's get back into the text, because we read in verse 4 of Genesis 6, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now remember, we looked at these principles of interpretation. If the ordinary sense makes sense, seek no other sense. There were giants in the earth in those days. What does that mean? It means that there were giants in the earth in those days. And it says, and also after that, we'll come back to that. When the sons of God, these angelic beings, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and then we're told, clearly showing that this is not a natural union, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, <coughs> this was a deliberate attempt by Satan to corrupt the human race to stop the possibility of the Messiah coming, the seed of the woman. And Satan does it in a very effective way. So much so that we get down to just eight people. That word we have is the Nephilim. You may have heard that phrase or that word before. The, the word means the fallen ones. It comes from the Hebrew root in the fallen, which means to, to fall or be cast down, to so on. The mighty ones that it references, the offspring, Hagabarim. Again, that in other, in, in Septuagint version, for example, which is the Greek translation, is translated there as giantes, okay, or gigas, again, earthborn. And it's from that that we get our word giants. Verse 6 says, And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For repenteth me that I have made them. This word repenteth here is used a couple of times. Nacham. It just means to breathe strongly. It's like a sigh. God doesn't repent in the way that that we would repent. God doesn't make a mistake and go, I got it wrong. God is sighing as he's looking at what has become. And of course God knew that this would happen. But let me just again remind you that we are not dealing with a natural situation. It's not just people that are wicked that God is going to deal with. Because as we've seen already, for ten people in Sodom and Gomorrah, God would have spared it. This is, this issue, going back to Dawkins and so on, who talk about the God of the Old Testament, they say, look, God wiped out the whole world just because there was a few bad people. No, it's not because there was a few bad people. It's because the whole earth had been corrupted because of this giant or this fallen angelic infiltration into humanity. You see, the reason for the flood is simply this. These angelic beings had left their first estate. They desired and taken the women of the earth. Their offspring were these hybrid beings, part human, part celestial. They were physically of abnormal size. They're called Nephilim, the fallen ones, as we've seen already. And again, we have this word that's used in Greek mythology, the same word that comes to, to us as titans. You know, this idea is, is reverberating through all cultures historically. 
You know, creatures emerging from the interbreeding of the Greek gods with human beings. This idea, again, we see what was revealed in Scripture gets twisted and distorted in other cultures, but it's the same idea. Same word, by the way, the root of all this is where we get our root from genetics from as well. You know, it's become the source of much myth and legend, but the real purpose of this was the annihilation of the human race. And only Noah and his family had kept themselves genetically pure. We'll look at this uh, next week when we talk about Noah a little bit more. But he was uncontaminated. Yet Satan almost succeeded in in destroying mankind. So was God unjust and unloving to send the flood, this God of the Old Testament that people try and vilify? No, he wasn't. You see, it was an incredible act of love and mercy to preserve his special creation. That's what the flood was about. We remember Psalm 119 verse 68 tells us quite categorically that God is good and does good. God can't do anything that is not good. Now, in the New Testament, this is confirmed because there's all sorts of various ideas and theories and there's a lines of Seth view and things that talk about Cain's family and so on. And none of those have any, any credence, not, not when you start to examine what they say. The Bible makes it very clear what happened and the New Testament confirms it. Let's just look at some of those scriptures now. In Jude, verse 6 of verse 7, it says, And the angels... No question what is being, what is being spoken of, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. We'll talk about that word in just a second. As he reserved in chains of darkness. Sorry, sorry. He's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So it's saying these angelic beings that left their own habitation have been reserved, I believe, for a time of judgment. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. And we're told the, 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 the context here. Giving themselves over to fornication and notices going after strange flesh. What happened when those two visitors went to visit Lot? These angelic visitors. What was it the men of Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to do? Well, they wanted to take them out of the house, didn't they? We don't need to explain any more. This is what Jude tells us. The word habitation there is an interesting word. It's okaterian in the Greek. It refers to the body as a dwelling place for the spirit. It's only used twice in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians it's used in regard to us. It says, for in this we grow earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, our okaterian, which is from heaven. It speaks of us being clothed with a different body, a different dwelling place. In Jude it's used to these angelic beings that left their body their natural dwelling, the first estate, as Jews calls it, to come and have relationships with the women of the earth. In Peter, interestingly, this is another one of those uh, books that is verified by the findings in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Cave 7. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sin, there's no question, again, that which is being spoken of, but cast them down, and Peter even uses this Greek word Tartarus, it was seen by the Greeks as being the lowest part of hell. Or, some would refer to it as the bottomless pit. And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Let me just throw in a little aside there, because I believe that in the when we get into Revelation, and there's this bottomless pit that is opened up, and these beings come out and cause torment on the earth. I think it is these very beings. They've been reserved for a time of judgment. God has chained them 
but he's still going to use them for his purposes in time to come. But he's saying, and again, and notice it links this, that God not sparing the angels that sinned, to the time of Noah. It says, but spared the old world to save Noah. So this is again linked by Peter to the time of the flood, these angelic beings that ascend. Okay, what about the aftermath then? Because we're told that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. So God sends the flood, an act of love and mercy to preserve mankind, to make a way for the seed, the true seed of the woman to finally come. But even after the flood, Satan repeats this exercise. Now by the time we get after the flood, God has chosen a family, Abraham's family. So Satan knows where to target his attack. And where is it we find this giant problem? It's all around Canaan. In fact, the inhabitants of Canaan themselves were the problem. Why was it that God told Israel to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan? Was it just because they were involved in immoral practices? No. You see, the tribes of giants were clearly in the land in Abraham's time. Genesis 14, 15 speaks of some of them. The remnants of them existed as far, as far as on as the time of Moses and even the time of David. Of course, the most famous of all being Goliath that we're all very familiar with. And there's a number of scriptures that we could look at and reference, all of which speak about these beings of abnormal size. Uh, the bedstead of Og, the king of Bashan. Og, by the way, is go backwards. He was this Ammonite ruler. He was of the nation of giants. The bedstead was 15.4 feet long. Goliath, again, from a family of giants. So Goliath had four brothers. Later, all of them got killed. That's why David picks up five stones, by the way. It's not because he thought he might miss. It's because he was ready for the whole family. We're given the details. I'll leave you. You can read that in your own time. It'll be on the web later. But the, he was of abnormal strength. Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, slew an Egyptian giant that was eight and a half feet tall. Now that's, you can see the bottom left there, the height of a normal man. That's the height and the size of the giants that we find recorded in scripture. Do you understand why the children of Israel were a little apprehensive about going into the land of Canaan? Why Joshua and Caleb came back trusting God and said, no, God will give us victory, but the other ten guys are going, no way. Kind of puts it into perspective a little, doesn't it? By the way, there's been lots of archaeological remains found to verify that beings of this size have indeed existed. And alongside that, there's all the other mythological other confirmations that we've got. Now, you know, we're not too worried about Greek mythology, but there's so much there that corroborates all the details that the Bible gives us. Of course, it's been twisted and changed. But Josephus, a noted historian in Antiquities of the Jews, Book 1 says this, Many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good. On account of their strength, these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians called giants. He goes on. In book 5, he says this, There was till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this day. Now, a historian can't write that if he's just making it up. There's got to be evidence to corroborate and support it. Now, some years ago, 
This book actually is residing in the British Museum, uh, or a copy of it, certainly. Uh, the Giant Cities of Bashan, and Syria's Holy Places, uh, written by the Reverend J.L. Porter. He went out, did archaeological digs and discoveries out there. He found in northern Israel, in the area of Bashan, these huge dwelling places, way bigger than any normal average man would need. Massive doors and big hinges and everything else. It's all documented. He says this, I have no doubt that the occupants of the Bashan cities were very large people because of all the doorways were wide and high. However, I could not tell how high the rooms were because there was always a few feet of debris on the floors and entrances. I would guess 12 feet high on average. That's double the average man height today. Uh, there's historical evidence of this. And then you've got lots of other interesting things, such as, you know, all those monuments and ancient buildings that we have. The Pyramid of, Giza, Pyramid of Giza, Stonehenge even, the Circle of Rephaim, all these ziggurats that we see throughout the, the Middle East and so on. And some of them, they still don't know to this day quite how they were made. You know, and the stones that were used in building these things were really quite incredible. That particular one you saw the picture of there, there's five circles, including 20-ton stones. And it dates to around about 3000 BC, which puts it perfectly in this time vein. It's built on a flat plateau. It's only visible from above. And it's about 10 miles away from a place that was known in Scripture of giants dwelling. And there's others that we could refer to as well. Uh, just, just a few things here. I'm not going to go through all of these, uh, but I'll leave it in the notes. Um, we've got incredible buildings that, as I said, they still don't know quite how they got built today. We've got 200-ton blocks at, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that place, um, but it's a place in Peru, in Peru. Massive blocks have been moved there. 100, 200-ton uh, foundation and wall blocks of another place in Bolivia. And it goes on. We've got 340-ton and 65-feet-high standing stones at Brittany in France. They've been moved into position. 2,000-ton foundation stones and 1,000-ton, 180-foot stones lifted 50, sorry, 20 feet up in the building at the Temple of Jupiter and all back in Lebanon. And there are many, many more. I'm not going to go through them all now for the sake of time. I'll let you look at them. But all these beg the question, how were these things built? Now, I'm not saying conclusively that this was giants that did it, but it's a strong possibility. I'll leave you to uh, look at that if you want to lots of uh, things there the other thing i just point out is that all these ancient cultures the uh, from, uh, persian and greek and babylonian they all have these ideas of these beings that were part terrestrial part human and part celestial and the idea again i mean greek titans one example here that they'd rebelled against their father Uranus, and after a prolonged contest, they were defeated by Zeus and condemned into Tartarus. Doesn't that sound just like the biblical account with a few names changed? You know, the Assyrian gods and things. You go to the British Museum, you see loads of this stuff. You have the idea of these winged gods, these gods that came down to earth. It's throughout all of these cultures. And yet, sadly, a lot of people dismiss this and say, well, that couldn't possibly be the case because they don't like it. Well, that's not good reason to reject it. You see, right the way from this point, throughout the Old Testament, Satan did everything he possibly could to stop the seed of the woman coming. We, we see the persecution of Isaac by Ishmael. Then there's the famine in Genesis 50. And God uses this to move the family down into Egypt. But then, of course, down in Egypt later on, 
the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, ends up trying to throw all the firstborn, or all the male children rather, into the Nile. It's interesting, I was listening to, listened to a, a study yesterday by another Calvary pastor, and he was just saying how God always brings judgment upon people of the manner that they were seeking to bring out. You know, what really started God's judgment on Egypt was them trying to destroy all the males. Again, trying to wipe out the line. How is it that then Pharaoh and his army die? Well, they die by drowning in the sea, just as they were trying to do to the babies by throwing them into the Nile. Haman built a gallows to hang Mordecai on, and he ends up being hung on those gallows. God's used the same measure. Lots of examples of those things in Scripture. Again, even Pharaoh pursuing the children of Israel out of Egypt, trying to destroy them, and God preserves them, brings them safely across the Red Sea. As they go into Canaan, those giant tribes there, but God gives them victory. And even up to the time of David, as we've said, and the giants evolved in a lot of those things, but even after that, we get to the time that Jehoram kills his brothers in 2 Chronicles 21. The Arabians slay, slay all but Ahaziah. Athaliah, the queen, kills all but Joash. Hezekiah threatens to the point of uh, being killed here. I just... All these examples of Scripture, and then finally Haman, and there's many more we can go through the Old Testament, all part of Satan's attempt to wipe out the line. So when we really understand the reason for the battles in the Old Testament, we shouldn't really have any problem with reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. It is one and the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Both reveal a God of love, a God of mercy, a God who was unveiling and revealing his plan. And that's why the inhabitants of Canaan had to be destroyed. Now, we're going to build on this. I mean, my, my contention here is that most Christians have a problem with this because they don't understand their Bibles. If we read Scripture, these things are clear. But we do have that strange warning, and we'll look at this in coming weeks, that Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And there's just some interesting things we'll draw out, some practical things that we can see of the way the world is now some other observations we'll build on it from there next week as we pick up let's bow our hearts well father we thank you for your word and lord thank you that your word reveals to us all that we need to know and understand and father whilst the world may not like these things and father whilst they may even seem at times uncomfortable to ourselves father your word just reveals time and time again how intent satan is on our destruction but lord how also determined you were to make a way where there seemed to be no way. Lord, you're the God who can cause rivers in the desert. Lord, you're the God who can bring life from non-life. You're the God that can raise up Jesus from the dead. And you're the God who has given us new life through our faith in that resurrection and in the atonement, in the blood that was shed for us. So we thank you now for all that you've done, for the incredible lengths you went to. Father, help us to understand and comprehend these things. And Lord, truly, may they change the way we live our lives. So that, Lord, everything in our lives is for you, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.